You're listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode 80, Intercast with Sam and Lou, History of Studebaker. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, enjoy the third installment of the Sam and Lou series of intra-podcasts under the CFC Network. Listen in to the latest Sam and Lou show, hosted by Cars of Carlisle crew members, Louis Genacopoulos and Sam Faringer. These guys truly did their homework and are ready to teach you everything you ever wanted to know about automotive manufacturer Studebaker, from its founding in 1852 to their production line shutdown in 1966. You're going to hear all about the diversified products from buggies, carriages, and wagons to cutting-edge cars that came out of South Bend, Indiana. Without further ado, it's time to gain some serious knowledge about the Studebaker Automotive Company. So, let's get revved up. Hello and welcome back, Cubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren, and tonight, this is episode 80. We're going to have the third installment, as you heard, of the Sam and Lou show, the Intracast, here on the Cars of Carlisle Network. And Sam and Lou are not only staff members, but great friends, amazing car guys. You've you've heard from them multiple times, and I'm really excited for them to uh, tell you all about Studebaker. In fact, these guys really put in the time. They uh, spent about three to four hours down at the AACA Museum and speaking with one of the foremost experts on all things Studebaker. A special thanks from us here at Cars of Carlisle. To Gaylitic, just want to say thank you so much for investing in our show and in uh, Sam and Lou's visit down as they did their research in order for this uh, third episode, this installment of the Intracast. So I am really excited for you to listen to uh, what the guys have to say. Before we get into that, though, I do want to give you a uh, trivia question, and I asked Sam for uh, what he thought would be a great uh, trivia question, so I'll have the answer at the end of the show. But the question itself is this, how many land speed records did Studebaker break? That answer at the end of this episode. So let's throw it over to Sam and Lou. Thank you, Darren, for that introduction. On today's installment, the third series of the Sam and Lou Intracast, we have the pleasure of learning everything there is to know about Studebaker, thanks to some friends over at the AACA Museum. Sam, you want to take us through and kind of start our journey here? Yeah, before we get into that, I do want to give a shout out to uh, Jeff, the director at the AACA, and to a fellow by the name of Gay Lydic, who dedicated about three, maybe four hours of his time to us uh, one Friday morning and walked us through the entire museum with the Studebaker exhibit and just talked our ears off everything Studebaker. It was phenomenal. So I wanted to give a big shout out to those guys. Lou, do you want to tell me, like, how did the Studebaker name get into cars? Sure. So the Studebaker name comes from a long line of craftsmen starting in right around 1750 with Clement, who built his first covered wagon. This kind of craftsmanship carried through to his grandsons, um, two specifically started agency Studebaker blacksmith shop in South Bend, Indiana. Henry and what you're going to assume is Clement Jr. It could be the third. I don't remember exactly what Gay said, but they built two horse-drawn farm wagons and metal parts for different type of freight wagons. And the third brother, John, there was five brothers total, decided that he was going to head west in the early 1850s to the California gold rush. Although he wasn't really seeking gold, uh, he also understood how to work with wood and build elegant wagon style things. And ended up making a absolute killing um, selling wheelbarrows, which he was affectionately known as Wheelbarrow Johnny. So from about 1853 to 1858, John earned roughly $8,000 out West, uh, which by today's standard is a ton of money. Meanwhile, Clement and Henry back home in South Bend weren't necessarily killing it in terms of success. Uh, they had about $68 in capital and two uh, steel mills, which 
wasn't really producing a lot. So thanks to John coming back into the business, they were able to get some funding and really hit the ground running in terms of covered carriages, covered wagons, and other similar type products that they built. And John M. coming back really coincided well, um, I guess, for them uh, with the Civil War, because they were actually making carriages for the Civil War. They made hundreds of carriages for the Union uh, during the Civil War. And uh, by the time they were done with the Civil War, they were the largest producer of horse-drawn vehicles in the entire world. So the Civil War had a lot of positives for them. Yeah, uh, in a weird way it did, and, and even timing into the early 20th century with World War One, where they were able to help uh, the United States Armed Forces with several different products, but that really carried them into the early 1920s with the addition of some other endeavors that I don't know if you'd like to cover in, in terms of their electric car endeavor. So Studebaker made their first electric car in 1902. Uh, strongly influenced by John M.'s son-in-law, a guy by the name of Fred Fish, uh, wanted to move the company in the direction of away from horse-drawn carriages and to horseless carriages, as they were known then. Uh, there's two electric vehicles that were used in D.C., affectionately nicknamed Tommy and Peggy, uh, that were electric wagons in 1908 uh, that would be used in the archive buildings to go back and forth. With Fred Fish's direction, they started beginning to make their first gasoline car in 1904, which was a two-cylinder, 16-horsepower little, essentially just a buggy with a gas motor on it. Interesting. So at what point did they cut production or at least try and steer away from horseless carriages or horse-drawn carriages, whatever they're called, and into the more gas-powered or even electric-powered line of business? Well, by 1913, Studebaker was actually the largest, the third largest producer of autos in America behind Ford and Overland. So it's kind of crazy that we think about it now that Studebaker isn't around, yet at one point they were the third largest automaker in the country. But by 1920, they stopped selling horse-drawn carriages altogether and shifted their entire production from Detroit to South Bend, Indiana. And with World War One, as you alluded to earlier, coming the sales after the war just started booming for Studebaker. They built their own plant in South Bend, Indiana, which is pretty famous for a couple things, but one of them being that it was the first um, automobile manufacturer in America that had its own test track, uh, which was pretty big at the time because nobody was really testing their own vehicles you know, in a closed lot. They also had 5,000 pine trees that spelled out the word Studebaker that you can still go on to Google Earth and look down. It's a little shabby now, but you can still see the Studebaker that they planted Oh, you know, a hundred years ago. So that's pretty neat. Apple has their claim to fame with uh, living workstations and slides in the area and whatever it may be. Studebaker was doing cool stuff before uh, employee satisfaction was really even known. Yeah. And, <laughs> and in the 20s, they were doing well. I mean, they produced about 180,000 cars annually and had about 23,000 employees. So nothing to shake a stick at. And then in 28, they purchased Pierce Arrow. And this was the first of... A lot of odd decisions by the Studebaker company. Studebaker, for a long time during their history, worked on trying to merge with other companies, and either they fell through or it was ill-timed. But this is kind of the story of this car, is trying to merge with other companies and um, do what they could to you know, make their brand bigger, but they were never, never quite did it right. Which isn't necessarily a knock on the brand either. Uh, If you look at any major U.S. auto manufacturer, they've all gone through their ups and downs, most recently with GM and the bailout in 2008, I believe. So we will talk about several ups and downs, if you want to call it that, or bankruptcies and no bankruptcies with the Studebaker brand. But ultimately, I think what we want to focus on most is some of the iconic cars they did produce which Gay so affectionately talked about. And I don't know about you, but when I was walking through, especially some of the the 30s era cars were absolutely magnificent in terms of quality craftsmanship, the pure designs of the cars. Like I really only knew the Lark and the Avanti, which we'll get into and is also a pretty iconic car, but they really did hit some home runs, um, which we can get right into if you're cool with that. Yeah, well, they had some beautiful, beautiful cars that era. Uh, the President, namely, is one of the ones that I really think of a lot when I think about those early Studebakers. 
Governor Pinchot here in PA, he had a 1937 president he used to cruise around in. He would go to, you know, openings, uh, big events, things like that. They were just a huge, huge regal car. I mean, they were enormous, long wheelbases, um, just a lot of work put into the upholstery. It, it almost, it was that weird uh, middle point between, you know, a true car and a covered wagon. It had a lot of those old time features. A lot of wood was used. Um, it, they're, they're just absolutely stunning cars. And a lot of them at the time still had the gas headlights um, until they switched over to the electrics. I mean, just really pretty and really cool. So Sam, I think the first real tragedy or blunder post Pierce Arrow being purchased in 1928, which didn't last long, was right around the time of the Great Depression with yeah. their president. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Great Depression hit everything hard. Um, you know, Albert Eskrine, who was the president of the company at the time, he actually has a, you know, there's a Studebaker named after him. And I'm sorry, it's Albert Erskine. There is an Erskine Studebaker. Um, he had some of his own issues. I believe at the time they were about $6 million in debt and pretty much had to go through what's called receivership. It's pretty much, you know, the next step to a bankruptcy. But in his private life, Erskine actually had some other issues. He had some health issues. And though he wasn't that old, uh, he had a lot of debt as well. He was a man who liked to, um, you know, try to hedge the future on things. So in 1933, Erskine was removed as president of the Studebaker Company, uh, which he had began in 1915 as the president. And consequently, on July 1st, 1933, Erskine committed suicide. Right after that, trying to hit a new direction, Studebaker hired new executives and sold Pierce Arrow in 1933, again, trying to do what they could to make moves and you know get rid of dead weight. But again, this was another one of those moves where at the time they probably should have kept it. Um, but you know, it, it retrospect is 2020. So in the uh, 30s, they were incorporated as the Studebaker Corporation, and that's when a man who was really big in the Studebaker community, uh, really well-known Raymond Lowey began working for the company. This is one of the men who is behind some of the infamous designs of these beautiful cars that we remember today. Um, there is some debate on how much hand he had in it, but you know he was the one guiding it. With him coming on, the Depression ended and they opened more than 200 dealerships across the state. And this is the birth of one of my favorite cars from Studebaker, the Champion. And the Champion uh, debuted in 1939 and pretty much carried this company. It doubled the sales of Studebaker that year and was just absolutely wildly successful. I spoke earlier on the President being a huge tank of a vehicle, just absolutely enormous. Um, the Champion and Raymond Lowy's designs kind of changed and they shifted the view of the company and went for a light Good, good on gas mileage with a reliable engine vehicle. And it really changed the entirety of the car. So it's what's known as a clean sheet vehicle where they're not reusing parts off of old vehicles, which to get to the, the size of the car that they wanted, they wouldn't be able to use the, you know, the parts off these old vehicles. So that was the champion. The champion was also cheap. It was $600 in 1939, which is just under $12,000 today and was reported, I believe it's somewhere around 27 miles per gallon. Uh, which was wow. just incredible for the time. So it was one of the lightest vehicles, too, in its class. Uh, they did really well with reimagining what Studebaker could be. They offered a couple different body styles throughout those years. None of them really lived all that long. Uh, the first gen was from 39 to 41. Still had that old style of integrated headlights and uh, the grill. Everything was kind of integrated into the front end. They offered that in a two-door and a four-door, and this was the introduction of their 2.7-liter inline um, inline six. So that engine actually outlasted this car, and in World War II was used on some of their utility vehicles. It was a great, reliable engine, which was a huge selling point for this car, especially you know at, at how cheap you could get it. From 42 to 46, uh, it was a slight redesign. It's a little bit wider, had a lower grille, trying to match with what was going on at the time. Uh, also offered in a four-door and a two-door coupe. The third gen is pretty important for the champions because this was the first car, the first new car designed after World War II. 
Studebaker, this was one of their really, really high spots where they started preparing for the war, the post-war economy during the war. It's also, while the war was going on, they were making B-17 engines uh, in the production lines, as you know, most big companies were, right next to their Studebakers. So they were getting ready and gearing up, and they hit this one 100% right. And in 47, the Studebaker uh, champion made up 65% of their sales, just one vehicle. Wow. So they carried on, again, that inline-six engine, which they increased to 85 horsepower by 1950, and then did a complete redesign with new stylings of the grill, the sheet metal, the rear end, the entire thing. The rear window, which is pretty important because this goes on to become the Starlight uh, Coupe, it was a huge huge wraparound uh, rear window and they called it a greenhouse rear window and offered it as a trim level on both the champion and I believe two other vehicles at the time. And so when they offered that, it ended up just becoming its own trim level because of how wildly popular it was. So that brings us to right around the 1952 would be the last year for the third gen, including the starlight. Yeah. Gotcha. And at this point, was there a V8 offered? No, there wasn't. And actually, it, one more thing about this generation of Studebakers, a lot of people, when you talk to them about a Studebaker, they remember the bullet nose, right? Right, right in the center of the grill, it looks almost like a propeller of an aircraft. They were only offered in 51, or 50 and 51. That was the era of these cars, but those are the most wildly remembered out of a, a company that really was going for almost 100 years. So, it's kind of crazy that everybody has that picture in their head of Studebakers, but they were awesome looking. They were very retro, uh, at the time retro, but very futuristic looking for uh, what was coming out. Yeah, I think uh, I probably said that to Gay at least five or six times. And by the fifth time, he was like, no, really, there was much more than what you would popularly know as the bullet nose, which is cool because going into that day, we didn't really know that. Uh, if you told me it was a six, seven year production line or something that would have been carried on like Buick did with portholes through the mid forties up into the late fifties, then it's just something new we learned that was kind of small that I think was a big takeaway for me. Yeah. But, I would have assumed, I, I really would have assumed it would have been a longer run than, you know, just two years, but actually, and 1950 was actually the year that they started offering that V8 option. Uh, so that was the first V8 you could get in a Studebaker. But safe to say that the majority, and I don't think we have actual facts in front of us, were that reliable inline six that got great gas mileage. It seemed really to be a car that had a good niche in the market within, hey, it's not just a box going down the road in terms of an economy car. It has some good styling to it, but it's also affordable and it had its own little market segment. Yeah. And I, I mean, the, the third gen was a great, great nostalgic time of, of the Studebaker. Closing the book on the third gen, the 47 to 52, Studebaker also had the commander that we haven't talked about much, but I, I think we kind of came to the summation with Champion being the most popular model through that era. The commander, it did have the V8 exclusive to it in 1951, and it actually put the big three looking at Chevrolet, Ford, and Plymouth behind in terms of reliability with an overhead valve V8, and it was exclusive. It was pretty cool. One tester wrote that the power plant transforms the maidenly Studebaker of recent years into a rip-roaring, hell-for-leather performer that can belt the starch out of practically every other American car. So I think they did finally hit their their stride, right? They were first by far with a post-war car entering the 50s, and they really hit home with what we're going to talk about now, the fourth generation, the 53 to 56. Yeah, the fourth gen was a redesign by a guy by the name of Robert Bort. Um, it's kind of crazy because they had two separate coupes in this era. They had their normal four-door sedan, then they had pretty much like a squashed-down two-door coupe version of their four-door sedan. And then they had what was referred to as the Low Boy, uh, which was designed by Lowy, which was a completely separate champion coupe. So different. The parts did not match up. You couldn't use anything. Um, on the non-Low Boys, the windows were significantly larger because they were off the sedan. So it's kind of crazy that of the same name, they, 
they made two completely different cars. And we're um, talking about three different models just for the champion. Correct. You know, normally you have your, your two door sedan, your two or your four door coupe. Well, now they just have another two door coupe. And instead of naming it something different, they just kept with that name. Um, and they actually, in 55, that's when they started dropping the Starlight and the Starliner labels. And, and then going into 56, they got a new body treatment with new eyebrows up over the headlights and the almost comically large uh, tail fins that, you know, would look more in line with a, a 50s Cadillac or something along those lines. One the- quick thing before we continue here. Another highlight that was on display at the AACA Museum that I think is worth mentioning is the 55 Studebaker President Speedster. The Speedster won 35 international awards for excellence, and they only made just over 2,000, 2,215. 420 of those were built in LA. Studebaker did have a California plant as well as its center plant in South Bend. This particular car was marketed for a true family sports car that could fit up to five passengers. Seats were custom stitched. They were color style to harmonize with the exterior. They had a cockpit style dash with engine turn instrument panel and Stuart Warner gauges, including an 8,000 RPM tack and 160 mile per hour speedo as standard equipment. And then finally, they did have a 259 cubic inch V8 that offered about 185 horsepower through a four barrel and dual exhaust. Power steering and brakes were standard with fog lights, wire wheel covers, backup lights, 3D booster horn, mirrors, radio, tinted glass, that type of stuff. But these cars ripped. They were nothing to sneeze at. They were competing with everything that was hot at the time, Tri-5 Chevys, that type of stuff. And in my opinion, the most beautiful 50s car, although the Champion and the Starlight Coupe specifically were pretty nice. This was a, a pretty unique car that was on display there. Yeah, I've read an article while I was doing research for this um, about the lack of respect for the Studebaker name in the muscle car scene. Um, they really did truly have some cars that could move, and that was one of them. Um, another one, which the fifth gen of the Champion, uh, they introduced what was essentially, it was just called the Champion Scotsman and then renamed just down to the Studebaker Scotsman. And it was introduced to compete with the big three and included, they also included Nash in that um, for a low price stripped down car. It had two engine options, the three liter inline six and a four, seven V eight that had 210 horsepower. So that thing could also rip pretty damn well. Um, is a good car light, still had a great engine in it. I mean, and I believe this was the year that they started offering automatics in these vehicles as well. But in 58, that's when they phased out the champion in preparation to add uh, the Lark as their new flagship vehicle. And I I think there's about 270,000 champions built all said and done. Which from 39 through 58, it's one of the longest single model produced, uh, definitely by Studebaker, but also of that era. seemed like everything was kind of transitioning every five to six years. So certainly uh, an automobile that drove that company to success through the 40s and, and into the 50s. So yeah, the, the 50s seemed like Studebaker was really, really getting it together. Um, public perception was good. They had a good flagship car, which they were for some reason changing to another car at the end of the 50s. Again, odd decisions by Studebaker made it weird times. Um, but in the 50s, they merged with Packard. Packard actually bought Studebaker out. And during that deal, Studebaker had kind of embellished how well they were doing financially. And by the time the accountants from Packard got in there, it was just, they knew right then and there that it was a problem. Another Studebaker move, while they were merging with Packard, they were also trying to merge with Nash and I believe Weston to try to make like a number four competitor to be the big four. Um, but the other merge fell through. So another one of those moves that just didn't quite happen. But by 1958, the Packard plant had closed and they were actually having a real big problem because the Studebaker plant that was in South Bend, Indiana, wasn't able to build the newer Packards, the bigger, wider vehicles. So they ended up dropping the Packard name in 1958. By 1959, 
they had stopped producing any new models at all. And a lot of this is due to poor marketing. Um, Studebaker was essentially selling people the wrong vehicle. They were selling, they went back to the large, uh, big vehicles when people wanted smaller, faster cars, lighter cars. Uh, they had gotten rid of the champion. Um, they also, because they were an independent automaker, they were kind of hamstrung, whereas the big three had huge, huge infrastructures behind them. They could keep costs down. Uh, Studebaker could just never, ever be able to do that. And another kind of, another thing they just, they never got to was all of the big automakers had a strike. And with that, a union was developed for each. Um, prices were able to be negotiated, things like that. Studebaker never did that. So they were paying higher per worker than any other company in the entire world and just couldn't sustain it, especially with you know GM down the road pumping out a million uh, cars a year, able to sell them for less. So th they really got kind of screwed in this weird um you know, chasm of not being able to get out of the situation they put themselves in. Yeah, it really took a downturn quick. Mismanagement, just overall decision making. It seemed like what was building upon a successful run was slowly dwindling. And hey, there weren't the only independent manufacturer. I mean, Packard, obviously, in partnership, but they died out. By the time the early 50s rolled around, the big three was the big three. Dodge, well, Dodge Brothers, Chrysler, whatever you want to call them today, Ford and General Motors had their own segments and more importantly, had cars to fit within each independent segment. There was a luxury model for each. There was a base model coupe or sedan for each. Sports cars were starting to come out, although they weren't really there yet outside the Corvette and the Thunderbird. But it seemed that Studebaker had to either figure it out or close up shop, which ultimately did happen. Do we want to jump right there? Or they did have a couple last hurrahs or try to. Yeah, they, they were close to closing down. But I do want to talk about one car that we were lucky enough to see at the AACA Museum. Um, just a beautiful car that had Studebaker stayed around. I would have loved to see more of this. Um, a car known as the Scepter. And Louie, I know you fell in love with this car. So I want you to tell me all about this thing. By far the coolest name of any early 60s concept car uh yeah when we walked up to this it was it just had a different vibe than everything else so as we kind of know by now studebaker was on its last legs in the early 60s and in a last ditch effort to produce a car that would win america's hearts they launched a concept that was inspired by futuristic concepts but ultimately the space race so two things happened post Packard that ultimately redesigned and redirected Studebaker's future. So the Lark was produced that we haven't really talked about much, but so post Packard era, Studebaker was trying to find its legs and we saw the Scepter. I mean, if it worked out, it probably would have been one of the most iconic cars of the early sixties. It was just sleek and cool and different and like a spaceship. It was, it was yeah. I mean, literally it looked like a spaceship. So Sherwood Egbert, who was a relatively new president at the time, decided that they had one last shot and ultimately looked at Lowy, an industrial design extraordinaire, Brooks Stevens, to create a car that would carry them through the future. So Lowy was kind of contracted out at this point. It was a weird internal politics thing where Lowy had his own design studio. He had a bunch of other cool projects that we haven't really talked about because they weren't Studebaker specific, but some of the most beautiful trains were designed by his studio. And they did have an internal designer who was trying to really save his career, Brooks Stevens, and they gave him a shot. So he convinced Egbert to contract out with, I'm probably going to mess this up, Caro Zerodia Sabona Bassona from Turin, Italy to build a beautiful Italian body at the cost of like $16,500 in early 60s dollars. And it was really focused around two center things, a full width Sylvania tubular headlight assembly that ran the length of the car and replaced conventional sealed beam headlights, including the same type of treatment in the rear. And then it also had one-off C pillars that were translucent 
translucent, excuse me. So from the outside, all you saw was an opaque thing. You couldn't really see anything. But from the inside, you could see through and it really gave the rear passengers a full experience to the outside world. They also did a ton to the body itself. Every part of that car outside of the formal roof, which was a split off of the Hawk Grand Tour, was unique to the car. And it made a very low, streamlined, sleek automobile that, in my opinion, totally transcended when you sat inside of it. So the concept of the interior was striking. Had low back bucket seats that were outfitted with a vinyl and chrome looking plastic for a space exploration feel. The speedometer was a wide strip type on a short stock that pivoted up from two literal bubbles, like a a bubble gauge on any type of aircraft that was just so cool looking. And then they also had the secondary gauges on top of the dash panel that were adjustable. And the speedometer itself gave almost like an early form of a heads up display. So you really didn't have to look down from the road, including the, the headlight giving a full stream or beam of light across the road and didn't glare. It was really unique and safety was definitely in mind. And then Brooks kind of took this and built out a whole line of cars, including a wagon on the same type of scepter. And then he also tried to have a, almost a cost cutting third model, a compact version called the Cruiser. Now, it didn't really look the same, but it was penned off the same idea And the same Italian company built this body for yet another $16,000 that the company really didn't have to cut cost in terms of, hey, they made, it was a sedan. So he had the concept that was executed correctly to have diagonal changing doors. So if my left rear door, my right front door, my driver's door, all were interchangeable under the same tool and die set to kind of cost cut cost in production, but it really didn't work out. The car was probably far beyond its years and was a concept. It was never going to go into production, although it was really well received and ultimately didn't save the company. So conjunction with that, we also do have one of, which I think is the most iconic Studebaker that we will talk about, but Sam, anything else in terms of early sixties, late fifties well, at the time, we all know that the demise was, it was here. It was imminent, yeah. But one more thing about the scepter. I just, as we were there looking at that car, um, I mean, everything down to the interior um, finish stuff looked futuristic. I mean, it was built of. It, it almost looks like it would look at home in the Jetsons. But it was just a beautiful, beautiful car. And if I remember correctly, because this was a concept car, um, depending on which side of the vehicle you looked at, you looked at, it had different trim. Oh yeah. Because one side was to demonstrate one one style of trim and the other was for a different side. It was it was just a really cool car. But yeah, that car was- I, I would like to point out, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um after this all went south, so Brooks Stevens actually took possession of the scepter as well as the not cool one, the cruiser. And he had them up until the nineties when he did pass away. He had his own museum, he had a really successful career overall. But in the late 90s, after he passed, the Studebaker Museum took possession of the car, and it was on loan to the Hershey AACA Museum, which for us was like once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The car wasn't seen a lot from the mid-60s up and through the 90s, so a pretty unique opportunity, and in my opinion, the, the coolest Studebaker made. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Um, I'd probably say the Avante is a little better, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, one of the cool things about that car is it was built off of the platform of the Lark, which the Lark era cars are, you know, some of the, the more well-known other than the bullet noses. Um, they ranged from 1959 to 1966. There's a lot of vehicles that weren't actually technically Larks. There were some wagons and stuff of the later 60s, I think from like 63 to 66, which were just called Lark types because they were all the same similar body style. So the Lark was actually designed around the body shell of the full size, like 53 to 58 Studebakers. And they just kind of, they did some very creative tweaking um, and shortened the wheelbase, but it allowed for six people to fit 
and actually be able to carry luggage. So it was pretty cool for a smaller car of the time. And the first generation of Larks, which were from 1959 to 61, actually experienced quite a, a good amount of sales. Mainly, though, that was due to a partnership with the Big Three where the Larks were being sold at uh, dealerships because they didn't have a compact car to sell. So they made like a dual partnership where they were able to sell out of that. Another part of the reason that Studebaker failed down the road was because that partnership dried up as those automakers started introducing their own lines of those vehicles um, and they weren't able to sustain the sales that they had on those. They also, at the time, I believe in the like the 59, 61s, uh, they did have some taxi contracts. So you will see quite a few in museums of the taxi larks. Uh, they had a, a nickname of the Economiler, and they were built on the station wagon wheelbase, which is like four and a half inches longer than the, the typical uh, lark. One of the biggest developments for this car, and it kind of seems odd that Studebaker missed the mark because... This was the first compact car of its era to offer a V8 option. Anything else offered a V6. I believe Rambler had one uh, that was about the similar size, uh, but that only offered an inline six. This is the first one of the compact cars that offered the V8 engine, which was pretty awesome. You could, in the larger Ramblers, get a V8. Uh, but again, it's Studebaker always was just kind of right there, but never quite got it. And... As these dual partnerships started to go out, they had a ton of quality control issues at their plants. Uh, notoriously, they had rear axle problems. They had problems with sheet metal, um, just a ton of quality control issues. And again, in typical Studebaker fashion, they were back to some poor management, um, some failed attempts at a few different partnerships that never went through. And we're back into the point where you start to see them slipping off, their sales are starting to go away. But through all this, there was one other vehicle that was truly, truly amazing. And my favorite Studebaker is the Avanti. And the Avanti, again, was another car that if Studebaker would have lived on, we probably would see a lot more of these iconic vehicles. Um, Louis, that's another car that you really, really loved when we were at the museum. What do you know about the Avantis? Yep. I would love to take the reins here. So we only got to see one Avanti on site, which really isn't a big deal. Um, not a very popular car. When you break down how many different iterations of the Avanti actually exist. But I guess we'll start with the conception before I start rambling about the supercharged one we did get to see. It really starts with Sherwood Egbert. I feel like if he had some capital... In a little bit of time, he probably would have saved Studebaker, or at least made them attractive enough to get continued by a big three in some type of partnership, whether it was through AMC or whatever it may be. But we can't speculate. We're here to report the facts. So literally less than 30 days that Egbert becomes president, he's on a private jet or some type of jet. I would assume private. He was a president of a car company. Sketching out on a napkin and so many beautiful ideas that are born this way, a car that was going to compete with Corvette, Thunderbird, other sports cars, only this one would be four passengers, a cruisable, luxurious sports car to compete with, at the time, the hottest U.S. production cars. Now, remember, the Cobra was not really there yet. It was only in circuits racing around the world the corvette did not have the c3 that actually came out yet so, so yeah so this started right around february 1961 where he designs this car then coins it off to studebaker great raymond lowey who has lowey design studios now he is not a studebaker employee lowey then decides to almost skunk works this meaning in 40 days he puts a concept from napkin drawing to clay model to architect it out where they have something that they could build a production model off of. And he does this in a, a pretty unique way. Lowy had a, a tract house in a Palm Springs desert development that he lived with uh, his family briefly from like 46 to 47. Decides to go back and leases a two room building where he and a team of designers that we'll talk about 
sleep there, live there. I mean, they're there day after day, night after night together. And there's four of them. Lowy himself, two former Lowy Design Studio employees, uh, John Epstein and Bob Andrews. And then a young student, Tom Kellogg from the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Together, the four of them gather in this Palm Springs studio type made house. I don't even know what you want to call it for the purpose of developing the new car design. So each member had a role. Andrews and Kellogg handled a lot of the sketching. Epstein oversaw the project from conception through final production model. And then Lowy really was the creative director, just putting his special touch on the Avante. So they decided that, hey, we're not going to be able to do this in a steel body where it's going to be a cost centric and being able to actually be produced cost was on the mind here. And then B, just a way to get the weight down, keep the car spry and fast. They went with fiberglass and went to the same manufacturer that was doing the 1953 Corvette. So from there, with the fiberglass body mounted on yet again, another Lark Daytona 109-inch convertible chassis, and it had a modified 289 Hawk engine. The car really went from February 1961 into production in April 1962. The first car actually being produced was part of a prize package offered to the winner of the 1962 Indianapolis 500. So Robert or Roger Ward, who actually won the Indy 500 of that year, became the first private owner of Navanti. And they also did have a, an Indy 500 pace car. And Sherwood Egbert's probably looking at this car being beautiful as it was and being like, hey, this is how we're going to save Studebaker. They had 20,000 units produced or set to produce in 62. And unfortunately, only 1,200 were made for several reasons. Again, mismanagement, lack of time and material, the strikes, they were not really over it at that point. And there was also a, a nice little myth that Gay told us. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but he was saying that there was an infiltrator from Chevy. Um, and this is, I, I tried looking this up and finding some stuff about this and I just couldn't, but you know, when you're talking to somebody who's been so into the culture of a certain kind of car for so long, they hear these stories that we don't quite know about, but he was saying there was a Chevy infiltrator who was leaking things back to GM and part of what he was doing was causing orders to be canceled. Um, you know, he was telling people, Hey, the car sucked or, Hey, this is what they're doing. We should do this instead. Um, just one of those stories that you only get from somebody who really, truly loves the brand. So you're telling me that Duntoff had spies? That's allegedly. Interesting. Anyway, it was also rumored that when production ultimately was ceased as the factory closed in December of 63, with just about 5,800 produced total between the two model years, that there was rumored to be thousands upon thousands of cars just sitting in and around that massive production facility we talked about all over the track just waiting to be picked up and studebaker actually put out a press release saying this is not true dealers only have what they have and that's all they're going to get there aren't this additional lot of cars available so that's avanti studebaker brand and this is where it gets kind of confusing and, and where I was really confused when we were there because you go to a car show today, it's rare that you'll see an Avanti, but when you do, it's probably not the original version. And this is because in, in a really cool way, if you think about it, when the company collapsed for the 63 era, um, now there were... Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, but they still did produce cars in 64, 65. Yeah, so they closed down the South Bend plant and right. actually moved all of their production up to um, Ontario. And they continued production up there until March 17th, 1966. Yeah, one of the cars that would have been in that era of car from Ontario was owned by Gay himself and it was on display. So we will talk about the end of Studebaker as a, a brand, but while we're on the topic of Avanti, let's just continue on with that lineage. So in December 63, South Bend closes. The facility, as we know, is pretty much non-operational, but there's still a lot in terms of 
current cars are being are needing to be serviced, right? So two local Indiana South Bend specific Studebaker dealers pool their money together. Uh, brothers Nate and Arnold Altman, and then Leo Newman, and the trio together forms Avanti Motor Corporation, which acquired the tooling, the parts, the production facility, as well as uh, Studebaker truck parts from Studebaker and picks up production specific to the Avanti. So the Altman brothers oversee new Studebakers being produced, or excuse me, new Avantis being produced, which they did not rename the Avanti 2 until the 65 model, but did produce a handful of cars in 64, this time powered by 327 Chevys. So they're looked at differently than the Studebaker owned and Studebaker powered with the supercharged uh, 289s, but they were still being produced and looked really similar with the exception of the 327 and fenders and raised hood to accompany that larger displacement engine, which also subsequently helped the lines of the car. It made it look more level and it ultimately increased the power to weight ratio and the balance, the weight transfer balance between the front and rear of the car. So they were better looking and they handled much better. And they carried this into 65 when they started it in the early 64 timeframe, they did hire back Studebaker chief engineer, Eugene Hardick. And this is kind of what happened from 64 up and through 1983. Now, one of the Altman brothers did die in the mid seventies and the Avanti two did have different iterations up to that. They had to meet us safety standards, et cetera, but they produced a lot of cars from 64 to 83 as an independent auto manufacturer. And initially they weren't even trying to do this. They were really trying to flip the Avanti platform to the big three or American motor corporation, whoever would buy on. But when they had no takers, they just said, Hey, we're going to do this ourselves and produce 2,500 units from 64 to 83 under this name. Now the model itself was bought over time and time again uh another entrepreneur came in by the last name of blake but i didn't really want to talk about them too much i mean we could if you want it really didn't the further it moved away from the studebaker name the less relevant i thought it was for this podcast so you guys can research it it's pretty easy to find just type the history of avanti there's a lot of great sources out there that talk about each different iteration but after the altman brothers and Mr. Newman, the car was less and less Avanti and more and more boring. <laughs> so let, yeah, less and less of a Studebaker as the years went on, uh, kind of morphed into something that wasn't really what we initially think of. Um, and as we had kind of talked about, so here we are at the 60s, uh, the South Bend plant, uh, they closed down. The last Avante that rolled off... Um, was it actually had a note, um, you know, defining, hey, here's the serial number. And I believe it even said Happy New Year's that was left in the trunk. Um, And then they ended up closing the Ontario plant in March 17th, 1966. After this, Studebaker again had just, after so many failed mergers, so many different opportunities to become big, especially when you had somebody designing beautiful cars like Brooks did, for years and years, it was just they always seemed to just kind of miss the mark and never could really break into the big three. Uh, after the 1966 closing of the Ontario plant, Studebaker merged with Wagner Electric and the Worthington Corporation, and the Studebaker name in automobiles went away forever in 1967. Studebaker did continue on. Um, they had some other, you know, uh, vehicle-related things they did. They did a few more things for the Army. Um they were kind of very diverse after that, uh, but again, it was just a, uh, a portion of this larger company that they had merged into. Effectively, there would never be, other than the Avanti, the Avanti 2, moving on that direction, there would never be a Studebaker made ever again. Yeah, in closing, we both know the Avanti well. We learned a lot about different models like President Champion, uh, the Lark to a lesser extent, the Scepter, obviously. But I really didn't 
understand just the the type of car that Studebaker set out to produce in terms of where it fit into the marketplace. So really want to thank Gay for his wealth of knowledge, giving us a, a private tour, uh, certain points of our tour in each individual model. You would see people that were just walking around the museum, kind of peeking their head over and listening in for a brief part of it. It was a, a pretty unique experience. And, and without Jeff and Gay, I, I don't think we would have been able to explain as much as we have been able to tonight. Now, as you're listening to this podcast and you hear some inaccuracies, let us know. We love the feedback. Darren gives a, a great platform for us to speak our findings and they're not always correct. So we'd love to hear your feedback. We appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to this episode of the Sam and Lou Intracast. Sam, in closing, anything you'd like to mention? Um, yeah, I, I just want to echo the sentiments that, you know, we really couldn't have done all this without Jeff and Gay um, and Darren helping us out. Really do appreciate it. And I, I want to say this was this was a really tough one to do because there was so much information ranging uh, 114 year history of the Studebaker Corporation and trying to condense that into, you know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes to an hour long is just next to impossible. I, there's so many other awesome Studebaker vehicles out there that if you get some time, I would love it if you just, you know, get on Google, look up some of their other uh, really cool models, the Commander. Um, the Lark is really has a lot of cool variations too. They had some sliding top um, wagons. They had the Sky Top Lark. There's a lot of really cool stuff out there, but we really couldn't get into all of it. So, um, you know, use this podcast as a jumping off point and go look into them some more because there's definitely some cool ones out there. Well, for this episode of the Sam and Lou Intracast, I am Lou. And I'm Sam. And we appreciate listening. Thanks. Okay. We are back from Studio C where the guys uh, do the Intracast and we are back to Studio A. Again, Lou, Sam, awesome job. So proud of what you guys put together there. Uh, Jet another great chapter to the Sam and Lou intercast within the Cars of Carlisle network. Great work. Really impressed with what, uh, what you guys came up with. And I hope you listeners enjoyed that. I know and uh, going through this, listening to it in the preview, the original draft, and then as we go through the post-production, Scott and I working on that, um, so much to learn there. Just you figure going from the carriage, the buggy era, all the way through to the 60s. Um, just a really amazing story about that company. All right, as promised, here is the trivia answer. The question, if you recall, at the beginning of the show was, how many land speed records did Studebaker break? And the answer is 29. In fact, uh, of that uh, record book, the Avanti, which was once dubbed the fastest production car, did in fact clock in at almost 169 miles per hour. So that is this week's trivia question and answer. So before we go, I just want to remind you, I don't want you missing out on each of these great episodes coming out each Tuesday night, so you can enjoy them Wednesday morning or even late Tuesday night if you're in the shop or wherever you might be. So be sure to subscribe. Again, do not miss out. You'll have that queued up for you every single week. If you like what we're doing, let us know. Five stars, whatever you feel we're worth on iTunes, rate and review. It means a lot. It helps us grow. We're continuing just to, to expand. I was on the phone with Brazil today, uh, talking with our friends, uh, all, all continents, all over the world. It's really exciting that the emails and everything we're getting from you guys, keep it up. Thank you so much for being just vested partners in this Cars of Carlisle network. So for now, I'll simply say drive well, be well, and take care. <laughs>